Let me start off with a question. What marks a successful ministry? Many of us, we, we've heard the saying, numbers don't matter, right? And, you know, I agree. Numbers don't really matter. I do want to ask a follow-up question to that. Just slight follow-up. To what point do numbers not matter? For instance, I would agree that numbers don't matter if we're talking about, you know, a mission trip. <laughs> say we do some evangelism, say we're sharing the gospel, and, and, and no one gets saved. And, and that's, that's okay. You know, uh, and maybe we're talking about our church here. And, you know, maybe we're, we're looking, you know, on Sundays, our English service is about, I don't know, 450-ish people or so. And say one Sunday, that number drops down to 200. I mean, we should maybe ask why, but again, numbers aren't necessarily the most important thing, right, to a faithful gospel ministry. Now, go ahead and like the IT Facebook page, but again, the numbers don't really matter there, right? But I do want to ask, how many people have you dis- discipled in your life? How many people are you discipling right now? How many people have you shared the gospel with in this past month? Because in some ways, those numbers do kind of matter, right? Isn't your answer to those questions say something about your life as a Christian? See, when we say numbers don't matter, we're really trying to communicate that numbers aren't the standard by which we measure our faithfulness. It's not the numbers by which we measure a ministry, or a church. But at the end of the day, there is a certain number that do matter, and that is the number of people that do enter the kingdom of God. And yes, we don't know that number, but God does. And that number only increases when we live out our calling to the gospel as disciple makers in Christ. So, If numbers aren't the standard, what is? How do we judge our faithfulness? What is our measuring stick? That's what we'll be looking at tonight. Tonight, if you have your Bibles, go and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2, here the Apostle Paul is writing about his ministry to the Thessalonians. And, and he writes in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. So Paul here is he's going down memory lane. He's, he's, he's reflecting upon the good times. The times when he, Silvanus, and Timothy ministered in Thessalonica. And what we're going to dig into here for a moment is about his coming. About what happened when Paul first entered into the city. And so we see here in verse 1, we see the word coming. And that quickly connects back to chapter 1, verse 9. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writes, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. The word reception and the word coming is the same Greek verb, Greek noun. 
And so here Paul is expanding upon this one thought that he wrote about back in verse, chapter 1, verse 9. It's like he found this old videotape and it said, our coming. And he wants, he wants to replay for them. And so Paul here is saying to the Thessalonians, do you remember this? Do you remember when we minister the gospel to you? Do you remember our words, our teachings, our character, our lives? Now, why does Paul do this? Why is Paul going down memory lane here? It's most likely because when Paul had to leave Thessalonica, the Jews that were opposing Paul started spreading rumors. Started spreading rumors that undermined Paul's ministry. First, undermining his authority, and then undermining his teaching. And they claimed that Paul was like the other philosophers on the street. They're, he was just there for their money, for their praise, for their glory. And so Paul here is trying to defend his ministry. He's trying to remind them. trying to say, hey, look, Thessalonians, remember, remember the truth that his ministry was not marked by the standards of the world. Paul's ministry was marked by the standards set by God. And so here, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to see all this. And today we're only going to look at this first part from verses 1 to 7. Verses 1 through 7, in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we will find three defining marks of a faithful disciple maker. Three defining marks that should help you, push you, challenge you to allow your life for the gospel. Let me go ahead and read the entire passage for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have, or we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you. First mark that we'll see is how we should be boldly discipling with the tenacity of God. Boldly discipling with the tenacity of God. And in each one, in each one of these marks, we're going to first see, first of all, how we're supposed to disciple and how we see then that discipleship is rooted in a character of God. And the first one here is this boldness that we must have in our discipleship that's rooted in the power, the nasty of God. Paul begins by saying his ministry here is not in vain. He's not in vain. We would love to say that about our ministries, wouldn't we? We would love to say that our ministry is not in vain, that our discipleship is not in vain, that when we're going to share the gospel, when we go on a mission trip, that was not in vain. <clears throat> I mean, for those of you guys who, who work with the youth, the youth is hard, aren't they? they you're, you're constantly, weekly telling them the same thing over and over again. You're just wondering to yourself, do they get it? 
Did he get it? This is why I ha- this is why I work with college kids because I get the fruit of the labor from all the youth ministers. I get to see what happens in college. Hey, just kidding. Youth ministry is wonderful, and college ministry has their own problems too. <laughs> in any case, all of us here want to be fruitful disciples. Right, there's so many times when we just wonder to ourselves, is what we're doing really worth it? Is it worth it? Does it really make a difference? How many times have you thought to yourself, I have to counsel this brother about the same thing over and over again. How many times do I have to do this, God? I'm tired and I'm growing impatient. And yet here, Paul says his ministry was not in vain. I want to know what made your ministry not in vain, Paul. How can you say that? Paul, how did you judge your ministry? Note first what Paul doesn't say in verse 2. What he does not say here in verse 2, he does not refer to the number of disciples he made. He does not refer to the number of churches he planted. He doesn't even mention about the faith of the Thessalonians, which we know They were a great exemplary faith. Instead, in verse 2, Paul mentions about his trials, his suffering. That despite all that he faced, despite all the opposition that came upon him, he was still able to preach the gospel. That's it right there. Paul here is thankful that he has the opportunity to preach the gospel. That opportunity, that's the mark of success for him. I mean, let's let's consider Paul's heart for a moment here. Paul, this is his second missionary trip, his time to Thessalonica. And Paul, when he first entered there, when he first entered through that region, the region was called Macedonia, he ended up first in Philippi. And in Philippi, Paul preached the gospel and he was jailed for it. Now, if you were in Paul's position and you were jailed the minute you enter into this country, wouldn't you be discouraged? Wouldn't you wonder if this whole gospel thing is worth it? I mean, Paul here, this is the beginning of this trip. It's like training your whole life to run a marathon and you end up pulling a muscle in the first mile. And yet when Paul reached Thessalonica, his second destination, he still preached the gospel. He still preached the gospel. That right there, that's a Kobe mentality, right? Despite all the opposition against him, and let's keep in mind, the, opposite, the opposition that he's facing here is directly towards him. It wasn't like this broad opposition against the church in general and why. It's against him. He was target. Despite all that, Paul still preached boldly and faithfully. He spoke openly and courageously. 
He held nothing back. Paul put himself out there fiercely as a target for all to criticize, all to oppose. In other words, we must judge our respective ministry not by how people respond to our message. We must judge our ministry according to our faithfulness to declare the gospel under any circumstance. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 says, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And now, most of us know this verse to be a verse meant for pastors, to encourage pastors to preach faithfully and consistently. But the reason why this verse here is meant for all of you is because pastors are called to preach in season and out of season in order to set an example for all of you to do the same with the gospel. Guys, the standard by which you measure your faithfulness by, that standard is by how well, how often you take the opportunity to preach the gospel. It sounds simple, right? And yet, as simple as it sounds, we know how hard it is. I mean, I would argue it's to, to, to preach the gospel with, un, with an unwavering fortitude. To preach the gospel consistently is an especially high standard because we, we are afraid of being hated and despised and rejected, right? I mean, that's why it's so hard for so many guys to ask girls out. There's a fear of being rejected. I remember being at a Clipper game. Okay, you guys know me. I I hate the Clippers. But it was free tickets. And I'll always take the opportunity to go to a game with free tickets. And so when I go to the Clipper game, what I often do is I wear my Laker stuff. (laughs) And I boo the Clippers. And so I remember going to the Clipper game. And I was booing the Clippers. Pretty loudly. When a fan in front of me turned around and gave me this really angry stare. And my goodness, that shut me up for the rest of the game. Like, I just didn't want to offend him anymore. Right? I don't know if I said anything else for the rest of the game. Maybe I just said a little yip or something. In any case, Clippers lost that game, so. <laughs> we carry that same shameful fear when we think about the gospel, don't we? That we just don't want to offend someone. Because we know what we carry with the gospel, what we believe in here with the gospel, it is not a tolerant message. This gospel here, this message here, addresses sin. It's a message that speaks of the wrath of God coming upon the unrighteous. It's a message that calls for the proud, self centered, worthless sinners to repent. And that's a scary message. It makes people hate you. I mean, they certainly hated Paul. It's no wonder why John says in 1 John chapter 3, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And it's at this point 
where we must remember what Christ has said, said to us. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus says this to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus came to the world and now no one has an excuse for their sin. That's the message we're bringing to people. And so the boldness that we must have with the gospel is the boldness here that comes from Christ himself. He is the one who bore it all for us. He faced the opposition. He faced the most vile opposition you can ever imagine. And yet Jesus still did not shy away. He did not back down. He kept going because he loved you. He loves people. And he wanted to carry the burden of sin to the cross in order to save his sheep. The gospel we carry teaches us that same loving tenacity. We proclaim a bold, a persevering, enduring love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. That's the gospel. So back in 1 Thessalonians, we see here, Paul suffered much, and yet he continued to preach the gospel boldly. Second mark that we'll see here is, is an honest discipleship, honestly discipling with the trust of God. We find this in verse 3 and 4, where Paul writes, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted to the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul here first writes, he writes here with a negative affirmation. He says he does not preach the gospel in any deceitful way. Meaning he does not try to manipulate people. He's not trying to play off their emotions. He does not he doesn't have a sleight of hand going on. It's not a magic trick. He's not trying to sell anything. He's simply just speaking the gospel, honestly. Right? Paul taught the gospel as it is. He taught it untainted and pure. And back then, you know, when, when Paul's on the street preaching the gospel, he wasn't the only person like on the street, saying something. There are many people on the street, you know, many, what they call them philosophers or orators, they're, they're out there spraying their ideas and what they do. In order to gain followers, these philosophers will continue to adjust their teachings. 
just to draw people in, right? Their goal was to convert people. Their goal was to get a mass following, right? If these people exist today, they'll be like these Instagram stars who would do anything to gain a following, to gain popularity. Paul here entered the scene, into that same scene, with none of those motives. Instead, he presented the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is. He gave no inch to any of these false teachings. This right here is a message we must hear today. I mean, we must, we must regularly think through everything we're hearing, everything that we're, that we're digesting, right? especially in the modern age of technology, where we can listen and read blogs from all these Christian writers. We can listen to sermons from other churches. And we can gain a lot of Christian influence from, from people out there. People with, I believe, really good intentions. But are we able to discern what we're hearing? Are we able to, to really just unravel and see what they're really teaching? To really know what they're teaching is pure truth. You see, there's so many people out there in the name of Jesus say so many different things. We have churches, Christians, talking about all these different things, talking about things that the culture is talking about, stuff like social justice, stuff like gender equality, stuff like you know, making the church a home for victims. And these are all, you know, they're good things, right? We should care for the poor. We should care for the orphans. We should care for the widows. Those are commandments in scripture. Right? We should care for them. But we should also remember that we should never compromise the gospel. I'm not saying that every church that talks about those things are compromising it. I'm just saying we need to learn how to discern discern and think through what we're hearing. So if the gospel needs to be pure and true, what then is the gospel? What is the gospel? It's a good question. Someone recently asked me to write the gospel down on a note card. In this card, I really, I couldn't. I got stuck. I think the last time I had to write out the entire gospel, it took four pages. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to let scripture speak for itself. But I'm going to think about the gospel and find one passage that covers the entire gospel. I think of Titus chapter 3. You can turn to it if you want. Titus chapter 3, starting from verse 3. Paul again is writing. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by the others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that... Being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. My friends, in these four verses, do you understand every point that's being made? Are you able 
to see the gospel there, are you able then to be able to tell when someone's not speaking the gospel truth? Are you able to understand the richness, the fullness, the true gospel? Look, as I'm telling us to discern what we're hearing from out there, I want us to also discern what we're getting in here at this church. SCBC Wana here in transit. We're not a perfect church. We're not a perfect ministry. We should also be discerning what all of us are doing here. Is the gospel being proclaimed purely, without error, honestly? We cannot compromise the gospel. So, then, for yourselves, when you're serving, when you're ministering to other people, do you present the whole truth of the gospel? Do you present all of it? Or are you afraid? Trust me, I, I understand. I get scared sometimes. Right? When, when I engage with strangers and we're talking, all of a sudden we get upon the topic of church and religion. Sometimes I don't know how I should be talking about the entire gospel of them. Should I bring up the fact that they are in sin and they need a savior? Or do I continue just building a relationship first? When do I do it? Or sometimes I'm counseling someone. I'm counseling someone. I'm hearing about this person. They're, they're in pain. They're in hurt. They're suffering. I'm sitting there and I, I feel that same pain in my heart, but in my head, I'm thinking they need the gospel. Do I say that? Right then and there? I get the fear. But Paul here, Paul here is writing and telling us that he preached the gospel boldly, fiercely, but also purely. He didn't compromise any of it. See, Paul here He speaks the truth. He speaks the truth of the gospel, all of it, because he has been entrusted by God. So here his aim, his aim here is to please God and not man. I mean, that's plain and simple right there. Paul here pretty much, if you read it for ourselves, it it lays our heart out, exposes us. Paul here is putting our hearts on a serving platter. Saying that your fear, my fear, our fear, our fear of speaking the truth stems from our desire to please man. Guys, we do not manage, we do not measure our ministries according to the response of man. We measure our ministries in our obedience to God. Yes, I know that's hard, but here's the encouragement. Look carefully with me at verse 4. At verse 4, Paul here says that just as we've been proved by God, that word approved is the same Greek verb 
as the end of verse 4, where it says, God tests our hearts. And so that same verb going on, that word test, that word approve, coming from the same Greek verb, Paul here is saying that God has already tested his heart and has already approved of him. In other words, God has already tested your hearts and he has entrusted you with the gospel already. Proclaiming the gospel is not a test for us to test our abilities or something or to gain God's favor. Proclaiming the gospel here is a privilege. It's a privilege given to those who have been approved by God already. In other words, we are free. We are free to proclaim the gospel. Not for the sake of gaining God's approval. We, we spread the gospel because we have already been approved. God has entrusted you with his message. Called you to be his ambassador. God's trust in you should give you the confidence to minister the gospel honestly. This is why we do not shy away. We do not shy away because we are no longer afraid of failing God. And lastly, last mark, third mark, selflessly discipling with the tenderness of God. You find these in the remaining verses. Right, starting in verse 5, Paul begins to describe what he and his friends are not doing again. Right? Starting in verse 5, he says here that he doesn't come with words of flattery, meaning he's not flattering people. He says that they're not asking for money and not asking for anything in return. They're not seeking their own glory. And they're not exerting their authority over others. In other words, Paul, Timothy, Sylvanus, they're not being selfish. Their motives here were pure. Again, the philosophers during that time, they constantly tailored their truth to fit popular opinion. But Paul and his ministers... They were different. They preached the truth at all costs. Paul here again, he's appealing constantly throughout this to the memory of the Thessalonians. He's telling them to remember this. He's saying, look, you know, you know deep in your hearts that we were honest to you. Right? That his attitude towards them were different that their, his values were different, and therefore that's why his results were different. But ultimately, look here at verse 5. And of verse 5, Paul says, God is witness. Paul looks to God as his final witness. See, even if the people he ministered to in Thessalonica, if they didn't respond at all to him, if they didn't notice his sacrifice, they didn't notice his labor for them, God knows. And that's all that matters. See, what Paul has here, what we see here, is that Paul has an appropriate fear of God in his heart. He has an appropriate fear of God. 
let me ask you this. What is your heart like when you interact with other people? What is your heart like? For instance, say you're in a small group. You know, in a small group, it's a private setting. You're, everyone should kind of know each other or maybe getting to know each other. And you're sharing. You guys should be sharing. You guys should be keeping each other accountable. And some of us are sharing just about their week. And as the sharing goes on, the conversation amongst the small group started, starts teetering off towards the line of gossiping. What do you do? I mean, the easy way out is just to shrug it off, right? You let the person vent. I mean, the conversation, you know, you know your friends. They don't really have any ill intentions. But yet, is there a conscience inside of you, something that tells you in your heart that maybe we shouldn't be talking about this person this way? Maybe the topic is a little bit too sensitive to laugh about or just to, just to even bring up in, by name. Are you willing to say something? Are you willing to say something despite how your friends might respond? You see, the fear of God, the fear of God sets our hearts free from that. The fear of God should bring us comfort and peace. The fear of God should help us act in a loving, gospel-centered way. You see, when our fear, when your fear is set on man, when your fear is set on your friends, when you do something that's morally right and your friends don't like it, what do you feel? You feel guilty. You feel ashamed. Why? Because you wanted to please your friends and you failed to do that. Do you see how when we have this fear of man, it chips away and compromises our fear and commitment to God? And this is especially important for those who are in a position of authority. Paul here writes, right, in verse 6, he says that he could have made the man as apostles of Christ. Apostles here referring to someone who is specially commissioned by Christ to bring the gospel to the unreach. Right? This is a calling. This is a position given by God to these men. It's a privilege. And so Paul did have authority over a church. He had every right to request something. But he but he wasn't overbearing. He didn't ask for all the respect and honor from the people. He didn't demand it. Instead, it says here, verse 7, they were gentle. They were gentle. And later on in verse 7, he compares his gentle character to that of a nursing mother. I mean, there's just this great image right there. And, and next time when we get together, we'll talk a little bit more about symbolism of of a mother, and, and, and we'll see him, Paul later talking about him being like a father to these Thessalonians. But what we see here now in these few verses, what we see here is a grand example of how to disciple others selflessly. We are here to serve them. 
This is how leadership works in the kingdom of God, does it not? I mean, Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Right? Jesus is the greatest example of servanthood. Right? Jesus himself continued to serve us. Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He served us. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, the night of Jesus' betrayal, Jesus looked at his disciples. And in John chapter 13, John chapter 13, Jesus here knew that his time was coming. Knew that his time was coming to depart from this world, to head to the cross, to die. And it says here, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them, his disciples, his people to the end. And I can't imagine what it must have been like for Jesus during that time. That last night he had with his close friends, knowing that he's about to leave them really soon. I mean, when we know someone's about to leave, we throw them a go away party, right? And we're still in tears. But Jesus here, he's going to leave, but his disciples don't know that. They don't know that. But he does. And so Jesus here, he gets up. Doesn't say, doesn't say he's going, doesn't point out anything of himself. He doesn't throw away, a, doesn't, doesn't throw a, a big party. He doesn't give a farewell speech. Doesn't really say much of anything. Instead, he gets up here. He ties his garment around his waist, rolls up his sleeves, gets on his knees. He washes the feet of his disciples. Washes every person his feet in that room, even Judas's, the man who was about to betray him that night. And after Jesus did all that, he says this, John chapter 13, verse 12. He says to his disciples, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right for so I am. If I didn't, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus here was gentle. He was selfless. Does your life represent Christ? Are you serving others, discipling them? You keeping your small group accountable? Are you visiting the sick? Are you praying for your friends, for your family members, for the lost? Are you serving others and not for yourself, but you're serving others with the same gentleness that Jesus here demonstrates? The big idea of our message tonight 
that disciple makers are defined by their boldness, their honesty, and their selflessness marks and stems from our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are the mouthpiece, living embodiment, the example of Christ to the world. Paul here in 1 Thessalonians, he, he was defending his ministry. But when he defended his ministry, he didn't boast about his skills. He didn't boast about his success. Instead, he pointed towards his unwavering obedience to the gospel, to the truth. He was saying, Thessalonians, when you think of me, do you think of God? Let this message here then be an encouragement for you. Because discipleship indeed is hard. It involves sacrifice. Discipleship involves sacrifice. It takes time. And and, for many of us, talking people is just difficult, right? But look at what God has entrusted to you. He has given you a task to bring the gospel to all people. And all people is all people, not just people outside this church, even people here within this room. Bring the gospel to all people. He says to you, my child, all I'm asking for you to do is to share the gospel fully and honestly. You don't need to win them over. You don't need to get them to like you. You don't need to produce any responses. I don't need to see fruit bearing out of them all of a sudden. Just be faithful. Plant the seed. I'll take care of the growth. Give them truth. Give it to them lovingly and gently. Maybe for some of you, you might be struggling with someone you have been meeting up with. Meeting up with and you're, you're counseling them. They're going through hard times. Maybe they're in sin. and The sin has been repeating over and over again. And you're meeting with them and maybe they just don't get it. And you're frustrated. And it's causing you to doubt what you're saying. It's causing you to doubt what you're doing. You're wondering, maybe I should say this. Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should just give up. You start critiquing yourself. Maybe you're not doing such a good job. Let me remind you with this message. That is not about your success rate of producing spiritual fruits. God will only look upon you and ask you, were you faithful to speak about me and my gospel? Did you speak about that truth and love and did you live it out before them? My friends, when people consider your life, can they say this is an example of a faithful Christian? He represented Christ boldly, honestly, and selflessly. Let us do just that. Let us then hear the words that Paul says in 1 Corinthians where he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your gift of grace. That, Lord, we have a gospel message a message that that provides hope, Lord, to this world. Lord, may we be bold then to share about that, unwavering in our commitment to you. 
God, God, the fear of man exists in all of our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that you will replace it with a godly fear of you. That, Lord, you will help us in our hearts to be more committed to you. That, Lord, we would be faithful to your message. Lord, I pray for our lives that we will be an example of Christ. And that, Lord, we would then just be unafraid, unafraid to speak the truth, unafraid to speak about this message of hope, of repentance to others. Lord, thank you. Thank you for giving us such a grace, such a gift of grace. Thank you, Lord, for giving us Christ. Thank you, Lord, for showing us who you are in Christ, that we can see the example of what it means to suffer for our people, to serve them, to love them, and to be, Lord, a caring, a caring servant, minister, shepherd to those who are lost. So, Lord, may we continue then to look towards Christ as our all in all. Be with us as we go off in our discussions. I pray all this in your name. Amen.